Welcome back to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. Today's guest, for many of our listeners, needs no introduction. Peter Palangin is the chairman and CEO of Intercontinental Real Estate Corporation and its affiliates, and has primary responsibility for strategic planning and direction of all company activities. As you'll hear, Peter is a thoughtful, humble, and passionate leader. And the discipline growth of the Intercontinental platform has been tremendous. Today, with a portfolio of 36 million square feet across 155 assets, spanning a variety of asset classes. Intercontinental's focus and Peter's focus is its flagship fund, the open-ended core fund known as U.S. Reef, currently the seventh largest in the NACREF ODCE or Odyssey Index, with an NAV over $10 billion. We think that size will be eye-opening to some of our Boston listeners who know Intercontinental for their local investing and not their national footprint. Which, by the way, includes over 15,000 apartment units, a real powerhouse in the multifamily world, which was eye-opening to me. Yeah, this is a great conversation. We had a lot of fun spending time with Peter, and we appreciate how open he was in this discussion, citing several examples of mistakes or bloopers, as he calls them along the way, lessons he learned, people he learned from, and the principles upon which he has built the intercontinental brand and the family. And family it is. You'll hear how tight the intercontinental crew is across the board. The Plangent family garners a ton of respect in the Boston area, and for Peter, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He learns so much as he shares from his father, an Armenian immigrant who started the family business as a contractor. And Peter's older children are now thriving uh, in their chosen professions, including Manon, who's a highly respected and well-liked asset management professional in the market. I think we could have spent three hours here with Peter. We learned a ton about the organization and their investment process, the discipline approach they have, and also some of the fun they have as a crew. So there's a ton of wisdom and life experience to share. We hope you enjoy it as a pleasure to sit with Peter, get to know him better, and we appreciate you joining us today. Welcome back to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. We're your hosts, Tom and Mike Greeley, and we're excited to be joined today by Peter Palangin. Peter, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Just for some background, if you're a Boston-based listener, if you're in the business, you probably know who Peter is. Peter Palangin is the chairman and CEO of Intercontinental Real Estate Corporation. Intercontinental has a deep history in the Boston market, but is a powerhouse investor across the country. And we're going to delve into sort of both those sides of the history of the business and the market today. So Peter, maybe for our listeners, if you could give an overview of Intercontinental today as a business, and then we can sort of dive into getting your career started. Okay. I like the word powerhouse. (laughs) (laughs) We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. And when you say CEO and chairman, I always look over my shoulder because I think of my father as chairman and and I'm still a kid in some regards, (laughs) but I'm going to be 60 next year. Don't look it. Well, thank you. And I'm psyched to do this with you guys. So who we are today, kind of answer first, we're an investment manager. We're registered with the SEC, happened since 1999, which was a little forward looking at the time. We manage a flagship vehicle, and I emphasize that because a lot of our peers have multi-strats. You know, they'll have a core fund, a value-add fund, separate accounts, et cetera. We don't. We've been high conviction, one fund. We're in year 16 investing United States Real Estate Investment Fund, which we call US Reef. NAV of a little over $10 billion, GAV of a little over $14 billion, though that's probably going to shrink this year. Our portfolio is fairly diversified. You know, we've always believed in diversification. We play to our strengths. We've had generally higher weightings to value add maybe than some of our peers. 
generally it's been nine or 10% in the fund. Harder to do today as the denominator's grown, but we still in our DNA, we're still real estate people. We play in a sandlot of 26 managers in the NACREF ODCE, as we call it, the Odyssey Index. So it's mostly Super Bowl names, you know, Prudential's Prisa One, JP Morgan's Core Fund, and UBS Principal, et cetera. You know the names. And we've always enjoyed kind of David and Goliathing against these big boys. But today we're the seventh largest, I believe, in the index. And our performance has been reasonably strong. I got to skate around that for compliance purposes a little bit, but I'm proud of our performance, I should say. Mm-hmm. But we also live by the old hockey adage, you know, you're only as good as your next shift. And we live and die by our quarterly performance. Our report card or our investor's report card is the NAV statement. A little different than the IRR training we all grew up with, though we still underwrite to deals on an IRR basis, but our God in the fund is quarter over quarter NAV growth. We're about 122 employees, I think. That changes. We've hired maybe 30 people during the pandemic, which has been an interesting experiment. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. We have six or seven offices around the country. Locally, we're still known a little bit as New England developers, but outside of Boston, we're known as investment managers. We have 10 people in Los Angeles. You know, we had built an acquisitions function going back to the early days of U.S. Reef and through the years have added to acquisitions and we have full asset management capability for west of the Mississippi. We used to accomplish that from here, from Boston with planes and travel, and we still have some of that. So Boston and LA, you'd think of us as kind of mission critical real estate acquisitions and asset management. The other offices are either because we have a footprint of property that requires boots on the ground asset management, or if we have an inordinately high number of investors in a region, for instance, we have someone full-time in Florida because we have over 100 Florida public fund investors who require annual meetings by state law. So we have a few people like that in our institutional services group. So I guess to wrap it up in terms of your first question, we're an investment manager, still enjoy being real estate people in our bones. And you know that's reflective of a little more alpha seeking in the fund around core plus and value add. Great. When you think about that seventh largest fund in the Odyssey Index, Boston folks have such great respect for this organization. But I think a lot of Boston people and New England people are biased because they think of what you do in this region. And then we talk to our Newmark colleagues around the country and we talk to your teams and you really get a feel for how active you are around the country. So that's something we're going to want to talk about is your activities around the country, how you view different markets. But maybe before we go there, because there's so much of of this that we want to delve deeper into, if we could back up as we often do in these conversations, we'd love to sort of hear about your roots, you know, not only your roots in the business, but back before that, your family's roots in the real estate and development business. I think it started in the construction business, but also sort of your path, your educational path. You were a great tennis player. We're not going to leave you alone on that. We want to hear about your tennis career and then how you ended up coming to the business and really growing the business. Sure. Okay. So grew up in Belmont. We were four boys. And my mom made us play all sports. I mean, I was football, hockey, tennis through the ninth grade and then hockey and tennis through high school. And my brothers were similar, the same, Paul, soccer, Leon, basketball. But my mom believed in team sports. And yeah, tennis took over more and more. My first love was hockey. Started at age four and started tennis at 11. So, 
And as I think you know, we've had a long-standing company hockey game, which is important to us. But here I am. We know some of your your players. Yeah, Matt Harris, great great hockey player. history. Yeah. yeah, and Matt made his way into a great hockey history illusion. He'll be happy to hear that. <laughs> I, know, I know he's known you guys for a while. Yeah, our teammate and good friend. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, education, Belmont Day School, Pheasant, and where I think you both went. We went to Thayer, but a lot of friends who went to Fezzi. Oh, sorry. And we skated yeah. there a lot. Played a lot of hockey in that rank. Yeah, there were other grillies at Yeah, exactly. Pheasant. Okay. And then Andover, which was interesting. A year in purgatory at the Lawrenceville School. Yeah. Unusual for following four years in Andover. And then Harvard College, a couple years at Bain as an associate consultant, which is kind of lowest level there. Staples, where I was really lucky. I had a cool job as assistant to the CEO under Tom Stenberg. And then I came to Intercontinental the day after I graduated from Harvard Business School. But, you know, sports was a big part of, you know, our business life in a way, too. I mean, I drove construction sites with my dad every Saturday morning. He'd take me to my hockey game and he'd meet Harold Brown for lunch and we'd go see whatever he was building. That was a normal part of our supper time kind of existence. And as a family, Intercontinental was kind of part of the family in a way. Let's jump back. We're not going to let you off the hook on the tennis quite that easily because when you look up Peter Palangin, as we always do when we're preparing for these interviews, your Wikipedia page is a pro tennis Wikipedia page, not a pro real estate investor Wikipedia page. So clearly that was a big part of your college and post-college career. Tell us a little bit about first your professional career. And we, we saw you played with a friend of the Greeley family's Bud Schultz a lot. Tell us a little bit about your pro tennis career and then the transition into the investment world. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't a very good tennis player. I mean, I barely <laughs> qualified for nationals at age 14, 16, 18 versus my brother, Paul was beating everyone 6060 and was always ranked one or two. I was kind of the ugly athlete in the family. And in fact, freshman year at Harvard, I got sent with the B team. I was playing number nine on the team and Dave Fish wanted me to get more matches. So he sent me South in a van. Varsity went out to California. And my incoming classmate had just beaten Boris Becker and Stefan Edberg at Junior Wimbledon, Junior French. And so I'm sitting here number nine on the team. And I worked at it, you know, before classes, I'd go down and hit with coaches at six or seven in the morning. And I, I was a grinder and I got a little lucky too along the way. By senior year, I played number one at Harvard. I beat Patrick McEnroe that spring at the NCAAs. And I said to my dad, I want to give this a try. So, I, you know, I obviously had some advantages where my dad was willing to let me give this a shot. And I played on the tour for three years. I was a journeyman for sure. You know, I got into the main draw of a number of singles ATP tournaments, but I did well in doubles. I won six titles and to 160 something in the world and played main draw at all the Grand Slams, you know, which was really a treat. It's a big part of my life. And I like to say in tennis, unless you're in my years, Yvonne Lendl or John McEnroe, you lose every week. And that applies to what we do. Chasing deals, you win them, you lose them. And then you're doing your push-ups the next day, pointing to the next tournament. And so to that extent, when we have a lot of athletes here at the company in other sports, certainly, but I think that's a big part of our culture. Yeah. And I mean, tennis is a fascinating sport and that people say this about golf too. The difference between being a good golfer, a good tennis player, you know, and maybe playing college tennis or golf, then moving into the pro ranks, it's such a high level of the sport. And it's so difficult. You describe your, your career as a journeyman career, which is way out of reach for a normal college tennis player. You know, it's just, it's pretty cool. I got a little lucky, you know, the summer I turned pro, I played a Midwest USTA satellite circuit, which is like the minor leagues and other sports. 
you still get the same ATP points you do at Wimbledon, but you got to play for four or five weeks on the circuit and then you get a certain number. And I had terrible cramping in the first week in Lawrence, Kansas, ambulance on the court. I couldn't, everything was cramping. And so I, I made a decision with my coach. I don't think I can play in 110 degree humidity for the next four weeks, especially after a cramping incident. And so I made a choice to play bigger tournaments. And I went up and played the Volvo International at Stratton Mountain, which was a huge tournament at the time. And I qualified, won three matches, got into the main draw. And then I never looked back. I only played one satellite circuit after that, but I played mostly challengers and ATP. And because my doubles points would get me into main draws, I could do that. And sometimes to the sacrifice of my singles career, because I'd be in qualities for those. But if I hadn't cramped, I probably would have been in you know satellites for another year or so. And, and I ended up having a breakthrough tournament right away at Stratton Mountain, which was kind of fun. Yeah, well, some, some cool memories and pretty unique in that sport to be able to get to that level. You sort of wrapped up your tennis career, your pro tennis career. Is that when you went back to business school at Harvard? I did. I applied from the road, got in with the requirement that I work for two years at a legitimate company. And I worked at Bain & Company for about two years at that point. Yeah. And Bain & Company was a force of nature at that point. What kind of stuff were you working on and, and how did it inform the next steps? Well, let's be clear. I was sitting at a computer building at that time. It was Lotus Notes, not even Excel building models. I was a grunt. And, you know, I got lucky kind of in the second year. If you schmooze your managers a little bit, they'll take you on the road to a meeting at Reebok or Dun & Bradstreet in Atlanta or that division we were working for. And I had a few managers where I could figure out how to wander into their office and say, did you see the Celtics game last night? And, you know, you hope they start liking you and letting you do more stuff. But I was a monkey there, an associate consultant. And it was awesome learning. I mean, all smart people with great habits. But I knew for sure I didn't want to be a consultant, but really valued that time there. Yep. And then you go back to school after that couple of years, you get back to HBS and the Staples was that overlapping while you were at HBS, your Staples experience? It was before and after. There were massive layoffs at Bain, and I was lucky. I slid over to Staples, was an early Bain Capital investment. Right. And to be frank, we knew Mitt Romney in a warm way, and Tom Stenberg's assistant had just left. And so I was put in that position, which was awesome. You know, it was a private company at that point. I think it was about to go public. When I went back the next summer, it was a public company. But they were adding like a store a week. So Tom would give me crazy projects. He'd say, we're thinking of buying this company in Florida, get on a plane and tell me what you think of it. And I'm like 24, 25 years old saying, I don't even know how to think about this. You know, I'd had some Bain training, but it was kind of baptism by fire. And Tom was an awesome boss and it was just good learning. And also culturally couldn't have been more different, you know, as an Armenian Irish, you know, it was completely ethnic there, you know, and all retailers. And it was just different than the Hermes ties of Bain. I don't mean that sounded snarky. I don't mean it that way. No, but it's an interesting point. And Tom Stenberg is a business icon. I think, you know, his name is, is not out there as often as, as you would have heard it 10, 15 years ago, but just an icon business builder, right? And at that time was on a very short list of people that were sort of growing at that level. Yeah. And he didn't just build the company. He built an industry. I mean, you couldn't buy contract stationary paper other than wholesale from a station or the idea that you had a CVS or Walgreens approach to office supplies was his idea. So you spend a couple of years at Bain, a couple of years at Staples with Stenberg, who's a legend to learn from. You're learning a lot at this point. Seems like then you make a transition after getting your MBA at Harvard into the real estate business. What made you decide it was the right time to get into the family business and start working your way through there? Yeah. So 
to help with that transition from Staples to that, and it's on point to your question, I actually sat kind of right here with Tom because he used to get his car serviced at Stadium Auto Body. And he had become a mentor, you know, and he wanted me to work for him and help open their European strategies with a guy named Todd Krasnow who had been there for years and was a great person. And so I was sitting here, do I join Tom to be kind of the number two person and help with Staples growth in Europe or do I join dad? And we were kind of raised expecting that Intercontinental would be part of our lives. And my dad had kind of a Rothschildian vision as a Armenian immigrant that one son would go into real estate, one into industry, and one into banking, et cetera. And so Paul went to Bank of Boston, Leon went to SmithKline, Glaxo, Beecham, whatever they were called at the time. And I was at Staples and Bain, and we were going to eventually all come in, you know? Mm-hmm. And it kind of worked over the years. But the idea was go learn from someone else's right. bag of tricks, not, you know, we already had the benefit of dads. And Tom actually was very helpful. You know, he said to me, and I don't know for maybe your younger listeners, I like to tell this story when I talk to kind of kids coming out of college is they tend to think of career as, okay, what city do I want to live in and what industry do I want to work in? And Tom, you know, laid it out a little differently. He said, look, if you work with me, your life is going to be a lot more, if you could see my hand gestures, more kind of linear, flat growth, corporate growth nine to five. Now, there was nothing about Tom Stenberg that was nine to five, but the point stands that, you know, in corporate America, it's long-term and it's not as episodic. He said, if you do what your dad or Harold does, he always associated my dad with Harold Brown. He'd say, and this is my word, not his, but I took it as your biorhythms will be very different. You know, it's down, it's chase, chase a deal, get it, lose it, move on. And I could relate to that, you know, as an athlete, I'd point to next Monday's tournament and you had to lose a lot, get back to work. And so that resonated as advice, you know, and that's a big difference for, I think, younger people considering corporate America versus private equity versus hedge fund versus real estate. The lifestyles are very different. And I think you got to really look at kind of how you're wired and, and what you're turned on and what gets you out of bed excited. And, you know, that's when the light definitely flipped on. No, I want to join dad. But at the time, real estate was in the, I don't know if I can swear in these podcasts, oh, yeah, no, but it, it was in the shitter. I mean, this yeah. is 1993, 47 banks had failed regionally. You had RTC and savings and loan crisis, recall and FDIC here, and it was an ugly market. And our portfolio was hammered. We had mostly a B-ish kind of value add portfolio. Yeah. What was the complexion of intercontinental at the time that you came back to the business? Was it different than today in terms of portfolio diversity? What was your focus at that point? So, you know, my dad was a contractor first. In the early days, he'd compete with Ed Fish for state bids and road work, et cetera. And he had offices in Beirut, Tehran, and Boston. After 1972, it was all Boston. And he was definitely known for adaptive reuse because we were contractors and we self-performed construction. We like change of use and we like ground up. So, you know, we were a mid-sized to large regional development firm. And our capital was, you know, high net worth LP. It was my dad's friends. You know, Joe Donald would invest in like it's a, name, a, it's a who's who list because you, you hear the names thrown around every once in a while and you, you mentioned Harold Brown. But that crew, you said Beirut, Tehran, and Boston, there weren't a lot of businesses with those three offices, but it's pretty interesting. I think this whole Armenian heritage, you're you're Armenian and Irish, but this was a bit of an American dream type evolution, right? Totally. I mean, my dad came over, he got into MIT and Northeastern at age 17. 
he didn't know what MIT was. He chose Northeastern because they had a co-op program. And he came over literally with $500 and his accordion. And that's all his dad gave him. And he joined the Northeast. He didn't speak English, met my mom, I think like two years into it. And she's Watertown Irish. And you get a lot of that in Watertown. And so it was, you know, he started a construction company and it wasn't really till the early seventies where he integrated vertically property management development and managing partnership investment monies. And so I like to say there were kind of two major changes or three, I guess, 72 when he became more diversified in the verticals that the business kind of offered. 1995, 96, when I moved towards fund formation and then 2007, when we launched an open-ended fund. But yeah, we were developers in the early years. And when you joined, was it an acquisitions role where you're doing a little bit of everything? And how did you sort of cut your teeth on the real estate side of things? Yeah, so it's hard to check kind of myth building versus how it really went down. But my, you know, my dad was sick with cancer. He was diagnosed with stomach cancer in 93, just before I got out of business school. So when I joined him, he had been told he'd live for two and a half years. And it's almost exactly what happened. So plans were accelerated. He literally moved out of his office after six months and said, Peter, I want you to sit there, which was very strange for me. And at that point, we had probably 40 employees and a lot of seniors. And you know, Mark Harmling was our president. You know, I had a great TA Realty career and Ed Nardi became our president. And fortunately, Ed knew construction because it was a learning curve for me, for sure. And we self-perform in those 93, 94, 95 years, we were still building. And in fund one, we still built until I built the Suffolk DA building at one Bullfinch place. We were front page of the Boston Globe because the building had failed its peer review structurally. And I didn't know what a moment connection was at this point in my life. And we had to go back and stiffen the building in 17 places. And it was a good experience, not fun being on the front page of the Globe, delivering the DA space late because of this, having to figure it out spending more money, a lot of lessons in that. But the bigger lesson was I shouldn't be in construction. You know, my dad was an engineer. He could do it in his sleep. For me, I was trained a little differently and I was not an engineer. Yeah. Well, we love hearing those milestones and sort of moments of transition and, you know, ended up probably giving you all your bandwidth to focus on what the business was going to be going for. Because you had this, you know, the continental construction DNA and heritage but then the vertical integration you kept with you through the company, but it's interesting. And it probably opened up your time and focus to start building the business to what it would become today, which is obviously significant. So those days, Intercontinental had sort of privately capitalized development deals and investments. What was the focus from a deal standpoint at that point? You, you mentioned sort of the heritage being in the B asset class category. When did you start that sort of conversion? So we bought back as much as we could from the banks in those years. I think your father might've been on the other side as an attorney to some of those banks. Yeah, well, one thing about our dad, who was an attorney, commercial real estate attorney for many, many years, and then spent his last decade working with the American Ireland funds. And he interacted with you on all those levels, but he has such tremendous respect for your family and you and your father, he holds you in such high regard. So. We want to mention that because your name is on a sort of list of gold in our house. Oh, so it's I, special for us to be here. Anytime someone evokes my dad and your dad, it gets emotionally in a really nice way. And I remember your dad warmly because I didn't know what the frig I was doing in those couple of years. And there were a number of angels like that, like your dad, even on the opposite side of a transaction who I felt were looking out for me. And that's kind of how fun one was formed, to be honest. 
to go say, I want to raise $10 million in 1995. I mean, we do that weekly now, but back then it was daunting. You know, people were hung over from Reagan changed the tax laws in 86. Everyone got hammered kind of 90 to 93. It wasn't easy to say, hey, will you invest in real estate? And by the way, I've never done this before and my dad just died. But I had some sympathy, you know, from Mitt Romney, I had sent a, a letter and he was commuting by one morning and he stopped in at like 7.40 in the morning and thank God I was at my desk. And he told me that story a few months later when he signed the subscription agreement. He said, I just want to come kick your tire. And I was glad to see you hard at work at 7.30 in the morning. And he invested some small money in the fund. So then you go to Iris Stepanian and you say, hey, mid-invested, will you? And, you know, that's the, a little bit of the fake it till you make it. And we had a number of strong angels and we crushed the fund. It was small. We used higher leverage. So $10 million of equity, bought almost $100 million of property. But number one, rising tide. We were buying so well, but we also, they were all construction projects and we crushed the fund and then transitioned to kind of institutional money really with fund two. And those $10 million equity checks, those are across asset classes, multifamily, office, hospitality. What did that look like? At the time, it was all Boston. Yep. And I think four of the five were office deals and generally smaller deals. And for me, I conflate fund one and two a little bit, but it would have been the DA building, 100 Franklin Street, we converted to the Boston Stock Exchange. It was 226 Causeway, might have been fund two. Anyways, there were generally under $40 million purchases. So cool to hear because 100 Franklin, 226 Causeway, these are deals that have traded several times since your ownership. And I certainly, I don't know if you did, Mike, I had no idea that Intercontinental had roots in the conversions in the early days of those buildings. So really, really interesting to hear. And I think that if you look at those deals, sort of the natural evolution, well, one thing that I think is a special story is, and it, it is emotional, but your father getting sick, you coming out of business school, coming in here, and in six months, he says, you know, go to that desk. And it's sort of the stuff of movies in a lot of ways, because probably sooner than you expected to be stepping into that role, trial by fire, all the cliches, drinking from the fireworks, but surrounded by a team that he had sort of assembled, but also surrounded by people on the market that most of them, I'm sure, wanted to see you succeed and help you. And you're probably like a sponge in those years, learning and moving at a rapid clip, though. I'll tell you a few stories because I have a little bit of a sense that you like these for this forum. But one of them would include, I remember trying to buy back the Mass Commonwealth. It was the Commission for the Blind, it was our tenant at a building in the Leather District. And it was over leveraged at the time. We had a chance to buy it back well. And we, I think 131 Tremont, we had converted twice into the AG's office and then to furnish rentals. So we had a chance to buy these assets back. I go to some of our, my dad's LPs to say, hey, do you want to put money? And the ethical thing to do at the time was if you could buy it back cheap, you had to offer all the old investors. And we always did that. Most of them were saying no at the time because it was real estate in night. Anyways, I go to see Roger Saunders and I meet him at the Four Seasons for breakfast. And he had, the Saunders family had been putting money in a lot of our entities. And I think brother Todd had worked at our Intercontinental for some years. So I have this great breakfast where I think he's definitely going to write a check. And, and I've got what I think is my best game. And we get to the end of it and he goes, you know, Peter, this sounds like a really compelling opportunity. You can buy these two buildings back at 28 cents on the dollar. He says, but I think I'm going to take a pass and let me tell you why. And he reaches into his briefcase and he pulls out a letter. And he said, this is the only communication I've received from you in five years. Now, I've been in the saddle for about six months at this point. And if you knew my dad, he called everyone all the time. 
you know, he'd call up Harold, Roger, Joe, whomever, and say, a check's coming, or this is what's happening, good or bad. But we didn't communicate that way at that point. So it was a huge light bulb around communication. And it was reinforced maybe a year or two later. I had a small piece of Bain's hedge fund at the time. It's called Brookside. I think they've changed the name since. And I remember getting a letter from them saying, we're not proud of our performance this quarter. It's the first line. And those made deep impressions on me in terms of how to communicate to investors who are entrusting you with their money. Yeah, it's a great lesson. Yeah, and we work hard at that. We love those anecdotes, you're right. And I think that you learn that lesson at that point, those two stories sort of open your eyes a bit. And that gives you a little bit more framework for where you were headed. Now you, your LPs these days are a lot of pension fund investors, which we'll get into, but groups with the highest expectation of correspondence and honesty and transparency and all that. So it's interesting. And I think you've taken that with you through the growth and probably helped you build sort of what you've built here. So it's a cool lesson. Griff always says to us and to the young people in the office, if the first time you're calling somebody is when they're selling a building, then you're not going to get the business. And we just told our interns that the other day, if you're reaching out to somebody because they're going to list an asset and that's the first outreach, good luck. It ain't going to happen. So it's a good lesson. And that along with the Mitt Romney stopping by before 8 a.m. and there you are at your desk. Those are very, very cool lessons to hear. And just as much as I think, you know, we hear when there's bad news, convey it right away. Don't sit on bad news, although you may want to bury it until the next day. You just take it head on and and rip the Band-Aid off. Yeah, look at my annual letter last year, if you care to. It's pretty conservative. You know, it forecasts a brutal 23. And I won't say my troops said, are you sure you want to send it? But they understood that there's value in really open. I mean, why would you tell not forecast that you'll be down this year as almost everyone will be 14 and 20 percent? They're going to find out anyways next year and it will help them with their own capital planning. Great. So we're going to now shift a little bit into Intercon until today. But just as a look back and we're sort of being homers here in Boston people, but that list, Stepanian, Saunders, O'Donnell, Stemberg, Romney, Brown. If you were going to write a book about the history of business and industry in Boston, especially real estate, those are all colorful names. There's not a boring family or name in that list. It must have been you know, an interesting start for you because you have your deals that you're focused on, but you also are seeing what all these other people are doing to create their wealth. And each of those folks has a pretty interesting story. Yeah. And it was a little bit of a slugfest after my dad died because I was I had to extricate myself from 50 partnerships with all these guys. And they went from being Dutch uncles, second fathers to, you know, a little rough and tumble. And I don't want to call out names here, but I certainly went to battle just getting out of some of those partnerships. And I was kind of hell bent on doing things on our own. Yeah. Well, probably had a galvanizing effect in many ways to the organization and to you personally. So now we sort of shift to Intercontinental today, I'll call it. You started the fund series, and now today you have your flagship core fund, which obviously is is part of the Odyssey Index. When did that start to take form? When did the focus on sort of the Taft-Hartley pension money? And we want to go into that world a little bit because some folks understand it and know it really well. But I'll say there's a lot of folks in the commercial real estate business that because they don't interact with that capital all that often, it's not a focus. We'd love to hear yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll just be fully disclosive about how little I knew at the time. I had asked these third-party marketers to take me on with Fund One, and they said, hell no. It was a division of Mays Pearson, a 400-year-old bank, and I don't think they exist any longer. They were folded into someone. 
they worked on the Louisiana Purchase. And it was two ex-Bostonians who lived in London and probably CIA, hard to tell. And they said, well, go do your first fund, show exits, and maybe we'll take you on. So they did. It was called the Trinity Group. And Ed Frazier and Ford Fraker became Ambassador Fraker to Saudi Arabia. And he came to work here at Intercontinental for a number of years after that, or before the ambassadorship, but after Trinity. Anyways, they took me on and helped raise some sovereign wealth fund. At the same time, and we don't use third-party marketing any longer, but we did in the early years. We had someone domestically who really knew the landscape in Massachusetts where we have 40 or 50 mass contributory retirement systems, so town of Belmont, town of Wellesley, all have pension funds. And it was a good sandlot to attack because highly fragmented, both by the consultants and gatekeepers who would advise those plans, and, you know, the fidelities of the world don't necessarily get out of bed for a $2 million real estate mandate. So it was an area to kind of mine in. And we got our first two public pensions in Fund 2 were, I think, Melrose and Woburn. And then Fund 3, we really blew it out. We had 40 or 50 pension funds. So we had some Saudi and Kuwaiti money in Fund 2, small U.S. public. We were raising Fund 3, which was, we had leapt to $90 million in Fund 2, $355 million in Fund 3. And right in the raise, tech wreck happened, and the denominator got hammered in the stock market. And we call it the denominator effect. If mass prim is a $60 billion, I'm going to make these numbers up, but say it's $60 billion and their equity portfolio is down 20%, and they find you do that math, they're now $48 million. Billion. So instead of being at the target of 10% real estate, accidentally they're at 14%, they got to resize. So that happened and fundraising just quiet, chilled. And it was kind of 01-ish, I think. We were in the raise. And I stumbled upon Taft-Hartley. We had generally built all union. Wasn't a hard kind of transition to, if we're going to take Taft-Hartley union pension money to say, we'll also execute union. And we started raising Taft-Hartley money only a little in fund three. We didn't have a reputation around it, but we had a good name in Boston with the building trades. And then with Fund 4, a ton of building trades came in. So our capital today is about 60% ERISA money, Employment Retirement Security Act, which includes corporate ERISA or Taft-Hartley plans. It's about 35% public pension. This may not add up to 100. And then the balance would be endowment, foundation, Leo Mossonary, and high net worth offices. And for our listeners who aren't as familiar with the Taft-Hartley capital, this is union pension fund money, right? Correct. Yeah. So most cities have 15 or 16 building trades and they all have pensions or retirement funds. Sometimes they have three or four pension and annuity fund and a health and welfare fund. And today we have about 520 investors in our fund. So we have you know over 300 unions are invested in the fund. And so the raising of that money, you do it in-house now, it sounds like. And I think Matt's involved with this part of the business. Just that- promoted to co-head the group. There yeah. you go. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, Just you, to you, from you, there. You have a good crew. Matt Harrington, Bart Weinstein are obviously dear friends of ours. And it's one thing we want to go into. We're going to hold this thought, but you keep really great people here for a really long time. And they, they, there's a long list of folks that we know absolutely love it here. And we want to ask you about that. But if we keep going on the Taft-Hartley thread... Intercontinental has become a leader in that space. And I think it's important for folks to know you raise the capital from the trade unions or the union pension funds, and then you execute the development projects, obviously with union labor. That's right. But they also come into our stable properties if they're in our fund. But that's the idea. And to be clear, returns are always paramount. You know, if you have the gravy of job creation, just like ESG is seeing that struggle right now, from a fiduciary standpoint, 
drive returns. And then if you can also be socially good or create jobs, great. And we are known a little bit in that sandlot. There are five or six union-only managers. We don't want to be seen that way. I mean, we work for some really strong public pension names, and we just hired into marketing in that space. We really want to grow that. Great. And, you know, just a snapshot, and these are rough numbers that I have in front of me, but, you know, around 15 plus billion dollars under management today over the history, you know, $21 billion of product managed, developed or owned by Intercontinental, 36 million square feet, 155 properties, I think eight or nine ongoing developments. And then we get into over 15,000 multifamily units. Yeah, that number blew my mind. As a multifamily expert at that, you know, it wasn't until NMHC in Orlando, I guess I guess three years ago, I got paired with Steve Centrella in a golf outing. And my Florida guys were like, they are a juggernaut down here. They're so active. And in this market, because we sit in Boston and we're regional, we hadn't seen you that much. We knew who you were. We know you personally. We know some folks at the firm, but we hadn't seen as an, a super active multifamily LP in this market. And that really opened my eyes anyways, hearing how active Steve and your firm was nationally on the multifamily side in 15,000 units. I mean, that puts you right at the top of the heap when it comes to units under under ownership. So it's an impressive stat for sure. Yeah, it kind of blows my mind. And this is going to sound gratuitous, but I don't think about those numbers ever. You know, when we've hit milestones, I say to my seniors, there's something wrong with us. We never celebrate. I mean, we hit a $5 billion milestone and didn't do a dinner or didn't even know it for a few months. And same thing when we hit 10 billion. And so we were going to do pre-pandemic, a full company getaway. And and then we reschedule. We're actually about to do it and bring all 120 people and go say, hey, we deserve this. But we do it because we just love it. You know, I mean, we have a lot of competitive people and the growth, this will sound sappy, but where it feels good is to watch people buy a better home or a second home or, you know, watch their careers. You name two people, Martin, Bart and Matt, who it's just to watch them do what they're doing and grow and, and also grow their families and get some fun in in the summer. That's rewarding. I'll look down at my shoes on most compliments, but a compliment around our employees I'll take all day long. I'm really, really grateful to them. And that's one of the things we've learned in having these discussions with leaders like yourself is the thing that folks are most proud of with the organizations is if they have that sort of cultural fabric, which you've clearly created here and not everybody has it. So it is something to be proud of. And I think that, you know, just for culture, and maybe it's a good time for us to ask you about culture here and how you've built and maintained it, because it is striking how you keep great people here. And the real estate business is is naturally a business where people learn, they grow, and then they say, okay, I'm sort of looking for the next challenge. I think because of the ability to grow here, you've been able to keep people focused, energized, and excited. And one thing I remark is, you know, when we deal with a number of your people, but from Chris LaFrance and Mike, then we talk about, you know, Kristen Phelan, who's another old friend of ours, Christian Poyant. This group of people have all excelled here, but we also see them out together at dinner and it'll be them and their spouse and another intercontinental person and their spouse. And I'm like, there's no client here. There's no, you know, this isn't entertainment. This is you guys actually, people that they work out together and then they go out to dinner together. It's just, it's a great collegial atmosphere that you've created. So the culture piece is important to us. I mean, it's kind of everything. And, you know, you can say we have a product or related as a product or Beacon as it, but the products are people and how we do it. And look, yeah, I went to business school, but a lot of this came from the locker room. You know, my brother Paul and I, when we worked together, built the team in our likeness, like how we wanted to kind of live our lives. And I think some of the names you've mentioned, 
would say they feel like they're still on a hockey team here, or it probably should be a little more kind of modern in what I'm saying, but even non-athletes feel that here, you know, and I, I married Kristen Phelan and her wife, I was the officiant and yeah, they go to each other's, even when there's nothing business related, it surprises me, but they'll go on vacations together. And, right. you know, my daughter, when she married last year, had like 20 intercontinental peeps there. That's amazing. I mean, I think you're the only top 10 Odyssey Next Fund who's chairperson and CEO is marrying is the officiant in the wedding of one of his employees. That's, that is a, a cool stat. It was awesome. And as are Kristen and Sam and just fun, but it is a little bit emblematic of who we are. And we have a lot of tenacious people and it translates to business. They like each other. They play hard. You know, we've had a 30 year hockey game. It used to be Wednesdays and Fridays now, just Fridays. We've had summer basketball games. And as we've diversified, there are a lot more inclusive social offerings, but that's important to us. And I remember in my early days at Bain, they were doing early studies on client retention. There's a, I think his name is Frank Reichheld and maybe taught at business school also, but he wrote a famous white paper in the eighties and kind of my memory, and he didn't write it this way, but just the simple idea that AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, you name it, it's always more economic to keep an existing customer than to buy a new one. Same thing with tenants, okay? If you lose a tenant, you're dark for six to 48 months, you're paying not a $20 work letter, you know, could be dark and then being paid 40 to $100 full build outs. And so keep your tenants, same thing with employees. And you look at the economics of it, which isn't what drives it, but there's a lot to be said, especially in the frothier times we're in now, you know, a culture that's rowed the boat together, you know, in 2007, eight, nine, almost our whole asset management team, at least the seniors were here then. And that gives me a lot of comfort that they know how to execute in this. And so, you know, retention has economic interests as well, but more than anything, you know, if we spend eight to 14 hours a day here, it's kind of nice if you like it. And that's how we operate. Yeah. And I think there are people that are well-liked in the market. I think uh, Paul Nasser and Tommy T, it just people who are respected, but also well-liked and well-regarded, which is just tough to do. It can be a difficult business. You're dealing in a transactional environment where there's something to argue about every day with someone. And somehow you guys have sort of stayed above the noise in many ways and, and maintained a great reputation. And what I will say, and you didn't mean it this way, but I like to be argued with, and it's entirely safer. Larry Summers was controversial, but I remember reading a long New York Times like Sunday article about his upbringing and you know, he grew up in a relatively academic Jewish household where they argued and fought all the time intellectually. And Paul and Tom, who you just mentioned, are literally brothers to me, but they'll get in my face when they disagree, as I will with them. But it's always with a view to, in a Socratic way, with discourse, you get to better decisions. And that definitely permeates this culture. It's rare that I close my door and people wander in and they're comfortable doing that. And that definitely comes to some extent from my father's style where he was very patriarchal. If you walked into his office, he'd be on conference call and he would just call people in and they would kind of learn at his feet. And I still hear stories about that. And we have a lot of that here. As a, you know, as some of our peers, not to be pokey, but asset management and acquisitions may not be in the same building or maybe not even in the same city. I'd argue most of your peers, that's the yeah. case. When we're buying a building in Austin and Steve Central is the acquisition officer, Chris Tully is the asset manager, they're walking the roof, they're doing the tenant interviews, they're driving with JV partners and that kind of symbiosis with asset management and acquisition. So when you hand it off and go, okay, we own this now, 
you know, you've had a pretty strong running start. And the thesis around it was informed not just by the acquisitions group. It had buy-in from asset management. And that's where the team stuff really matters. Yeah. Well, we want to talk a little bit about sort of investing themes and the thesis around your different strategies and what asset classes you like today. But I heard something you talked about early in COVID. You did an interview and, you know, the question was sort of, what are you telling your asset management teams? And, and one of the message was, you know, hug your tenants and we're going to hug our tenants. We're going to hug our investors. We're going to hug our lenders and we're going to figure this out. But we're emerging, you know, depending on what asset class you're looking at from, you know, a pretty interesting few years where it was doomsday for a few months. And then it was, there was a great sort of capital market environment for a little while. And now we're sort of back into some headwinds for sure. Today, your portfolio is pretty diversified. You guys are active in many different asset classes, which you know, I would ask you to talk about, but you own some really interesting things in your different vehicles. What are you looking at today? What do you feel good about in today's market? Not a lot to back up a touch. We've been in a position in the last kind of 10 years where we could really drive with purpose our allocations and weightings. Prior to that, even through some reasonably successful funds, and if you care to digress later and go from why we went from four closed-end funds to an open-ended, I'd be happy to share that. But the story that might be relevant to this part of the discussion is fund four was a negative fund for us. And you know the lessons learned were regional over-concentration. It was a New England value-add fund. We did six deals. I don't know if compliance would want me to talk about performance, but let me just say two of them were massive bloopers. Good thesis. We're building the two water place apartment towers in Providence. I think our break-even sell-through was like $318 a square foot, and we hit our IRR bogeys at $520 a square foot. I think those numbers are pretty close from 23 years ago. We didn't come close to it. And I'm sitting here watching the leather district see north of 1000 bucks at the time. The South Station Amtrak ride to Providence is 48 minutes. So, okay, three to $500 in Providence in Class A new. We hit the 2006-7 meltdown. So some of it was in a close-end structure. We were subject to raising money and having to get it out in a confined 36-month period. And when we had money, we felt we had to put it to use. And think about the risk that imposes on an investor. And they talk about vintage year performance in private equity. To my way of thinking, it's much riskier in, in real estate private equity. Our industry is built on five and seven and 10-year leases. Most funds are seven years in term with a 24-month raise, a 36-month investment period, a seven-year term, and most managers sneak extension periods into their documents. So seven-year funds can be 12 plus years. And to impress a gatekeeper for a pension investor, you have to IRR out and have exits and optimally, because the math favors earlier exit in years four or five. So a lot can go wrong if timing is imperfect. And you watch people like who I grew up respecting, like TA and Alan Leventhal at Beacon, they had remarkable exit discipline. If you don't in the close end world, there's already enough risk around the timing. So I guess I'm answering that in the old days, we kind of would put out money when we could. We weren't driving weightings with as much flexibility as we would have liked, and we only had so much money. So kind of existential crisis, you don't want to have two bad funds. And nearly all good names have had a bad fund, but you don't want to. And so we went to an open-ended fund, a counterintuitive. A lot of my PE and hedge fund friends said, why would you trade sticky locked up money for open-ended redeemable money where people can vote with their feet quarterly? And the answer is, if 
you're at your benchmark or better, institutional money is pretty sticky. You know, and they might reallocate or size down in times like this because they've been beaten up in other asset classes. But generally, if you're performing, they stick by you. And, you know, the proof's a little bit in the pudding. In 16 years, we've grown the fund to $15 billion. And I don't have any regrets about it. I like the way we do it. And yeah, our money can get redeemed. It still can. And, and we have a modest redemption queue today, as most of the Odyssey funds do. But what was fun to watch was kind of the inculcation around open-ended and NAV permeate the firm, you know, because Centrella grew up at Lendley's Fidelity and AEW, where IRR was as God. It still is from an underwriting standpoint, but for the company, it's NAV growth. And, you know, to write underwrite to quarter over quarter appreciation in solid income is kind of everything for us. In terms of property types, I said not much is interesting. Pencils are down here right now. You know, I think it's early to put money out under the kind of falling knives idea that anything you buy today might be worth less tomorrow. And so to have to take in a $20 million pension investor and give them an NAV report that they're down 8% next quarter, we'd rather avoid that, right? So we're not putting money out now. And we have incoming money of uh, approximately $400 million undrawn. And, and so we want to really build a war chest in the next kind of six to 12 months. And the floodgates will reopen. Most people perceive opportunity coming out of these tough times. But right now, our portfolio looks like this. It's approximately between 28 and a half and 30% office. It'll be 28X when we report next quarter. I think last quarter it was 30%. I just want to say that's a thank God because we were 44% weighted to office at the yeah, start. Of that was going to be the follow-up question. Yeah. And we very deliberately drove down starting in 19. And we were lucky because we were still raising money so we could buy anything but office. And we grew our industrial weighting from 8% to 17%. We want to get it up closer to 20 our retail weighting has always been largely underweight, which has helped us a lot not getting beaten up by the Amazon effects. But there's an opportunity to take it from, we've been under 2%, to take it up closer to 8 to 10% in this dislocated market next year and the year after. And we've never been a shopping mall, big box buyer, but we certainly like super grocer anchored with the CBS, Walgreens, and three to seven inline tenants is the type of retail we own and like. And we'll look to do a lot more of that. We'll continue to like medical office and lab, little overbuilt and certainly in submarkets around lab, especially. I'm sure you could tell me more about that than I know deal by deal. But we own actively in that space. Interestingly, I don't know if you know this, but Nacrief's about to fold healthcare medical into office. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. I spend a lot of my time, as you know, in medical office and spend a lot of time talking to Mike and Patty about these opportunities. And we've been rooting for Nacrief to sort of acknowledge the role of MOB in the market a little bit more? You know, they're doing it and respectfully, I think they're doing it the wrong way and that I agree it should have. We break it out in our pie charts, but they're about to fold it into office. And I, I think that's a mistake because it doesn't correlate to office necessarily. Right. While they're doing that, the healthcare REITs are now shifting. Instead of calling it medical office, they're calling it outpatient because they're trying to get away from the office moniker there. So, but you've bought a lot of, you know, and I want you to finish sort of, you know, because it's multifamily, there's industrial. So why don't we keep going on that? Yeah, path? large overweight to apartments. I think we're at kind of 48% or so. I really like that overweight. We don't do single family housing. We don't do condo. We could in the fund, but we just don't like the risk profile. Lessons learned from Waterplace and Fund 4. And it was kind of the only stuff that really crushed my dad was some of his condo deals in the late 80s, early 90s. 
you know, if your timing's right, you can crush condo, but it also gives off UBTI, which institutional investors don't like. So apartment overweight, we like, tends to be a steady eddy, notwithstanding there's been cap rate expansion as interest rates nearly doubled. Rent by necessity usually kicks in when the mortgage market and the housing market gets frothier, which it will. And apartments usually benefit. And you probably track the numbers. Fundamentals are actually very strong. They're very strong. In this market, they're very strong. They're still excellent liquidity here. We talk to our peers nationally on a weekly, biweekly basis. And I think we're lucky not only to be in the the vertical we're in multifamily, but also in the geography that we're in in the Northeast. You know, we have more institutional activity, deep buyer pools. Cap rates have certainly inflated. You're right about that. But the fundamentals have kept NOIs up and kept underwriting strong. So we're encouraged by it. And I concur with your thesis. That's a good overweight, you know, when you look at the other other asset classes and, and your weight there. And we can be eclectic, less in the fund. You know, we've got a lot more boring, but, you know, you know from old Intercontinental, whether it was Water Country, Sugarbush, Magic and Bromley Mountains. That's a cool one. Water Country. Yeah. How do you underwrite that? Yeah. All, yeah. Of these, these, all of these, these are levers cool there. So my dad's form of underwriting was dad does the real estate, Joe does the food, and that point, we had a third partner who operated his family operated. Joe Donald. Yeah. And they, that's how they did the mountains. Joe would do the candy and the popcorn and my dad would do the development. And so that, that was the underwriting. I don't think my dad underwrote the internal rate of returns. And I mean, he, he'd do times your money certainly and could do it in his head. I mean, and he could do it on an abacus. He was that good at math, but you know, different screens around investment returns. It was a great holding. And, you know, for a 10 week season, it had phenomenal economics. So we're talking about water country here. Yeah, you can sing it if yeah, if you, water country. Water, see, I'm not that yeah, good. Just, but every get kid, your, get your accordion. Up, everyone Peter, who grew up in this area knows water country, and we had a ton of fun there as kids. So, how what was the exit on water country? Was that a real estate exit, or did was that a private equity exit? Joe and the partner bought us out okay. after my dad, a couple of years after our dad passed. And and then I think they sold it to a larger kind of aggregator. Of right. As far as eclectic acquisitions, we love Nantucket topics, but you made a very interesting acquisition on Nantucket, which is kind of the great example of mission critical real estate. If you want to tell us about the thesis behind that. Yeah. You know, some eyebrows go up because I vacationed there and I didn't grow up vacationing there. I grew up in little Armenia in West Falmouth, but So this is how it came about. It's a great holding. It's been a strong performer, but it does stand out in a core Odyssey fund for sure. And when we meet with consultants, they frequently say, wait, tell us about this. It's not open Sundays though. That's our one complaint. They don't need to be, but not open Sundays. So we'll talk about that. Has everything to do with housing. It's just hard to house employees on the island. So a firm called Audax that spun out of Bain and they knew some of the principals there had put it under agreement to purchase in 08. This is the Marine Home Center. Correct. Marine Home Center. It's think of it as a Home Depot or a Lowe's, you know, and at the time we had a flower store, sneaker store on Main Street, appliance store still there. It was pretty diversified, but you could get anything there and we're kind of the only place to get it. I mean, you could get a hammer at Stop and Shop, but you had to buy your hardware from us and enjoy some monopoly on the island. And so Audax put it under contract and a friend over there called me up and said, would you help us understand the real estate? And, you know, we help with the underwriting of the real estate. And meanwhile, you know, it's 2007, eight ish. It was an early U.S. reef deal and everything's tanking, certainly housing and therefore lumber sales. And so mid due diligence, my friend said, I think we're going to pass on the deal. You should take it over. So we did, and we renegotiated a different and newer and lower purchase price. And we bought it. We bought it figuring that, look, if we really screw up the operating business, the real estate's irreplaceable. 
you know, it's oceanfront and you know where it is, right? Coming into downtown Nantucket. And so you could close the doors and do hospitality, do apartments, do senior living. There are a lot of things you could do in time. In the meanwhile, we actually started liking the economics. The cash flow is crazy good. We've grown it well. And I knew enough that I went through a search and interviewed CEOs and we brought in a retail expert. He's still there and has done a great job. Also kept the senior team intact because there was a little kind of not town and gown, but off island interloper investment firm. And I had pretty low profile out there. I don't think people knew who Intercontinental was, you know, other than some of my friends out there. So there was suspicion, you know, and we threw a clam bake on the first day in the parking lot. And I just said, this is who I am. This is who we are. We're not looking to buy it and flip it. We're not looking to lay you off. You know, we're looking to join your family and you join ours. And it's been a, I think we've owned it for 15 years and it's had crazy good numbers. I mean, the income that it adds to the fund is excellent. Yeah, it's an incredible place. And I was facetiously said it's not open Sundays, but I wish it were. There are so many weekends where we need to go there for one thing or another, but you said mission critical. I don't think there's a better example of mission critical retail anywhere You know that I've been. Everything from a hammer to a grill to potting soil, it's a catch Building supplies. Everything yeah. you need. You know, I had got to know Jack Welsh a little bit through the Pheasant board. His wife was on the board. And I remember when we bought it, Jack was like, PETA, in his Salem accent. You know, he said, that was a great purchase. I, I, if you're taking <laughs> money, I'd write a check. And, and so that was like God saying it was a good deal, yeah. you know. It was What's great. amazing is everybody has, there's a credit system. Everybody has an account number. And you go in and maybe one in 20 people pays cash. It's all on an account which speaks to how important that real estate is to the people who live out there. Yeah, and it's just a cool center of commerce. But like you said, Eclectic, that's a unique acquisition for your platform. But I think it's interesting when you can sort of study at a very granular level, a small market, Nantucket's a great example of a small market, but something that long-term is a tremendous business and great real estate, obviously, it's pretty cool. You guys made an acquisition in the Longwood Medical Area where, where my team, we spend a lot of our time in the LMA. And you bought a, a lab asset on Blackfan, which, you know, you were ahead of your time buying that asset. But I think it, you took that kind of classic intercontinental long-term view that that was irreplaceable real estate. It's infrastructure that serves maybe the most important sort of life science submarket in our city, which is connected to the hospitals and connected to Harvard Medical School. But that kind of acquisition, you were able to make those sort of buys in this open-ended structure, right? And know that we're buying great real estate with, with great cash flow, but this is something we'd love to own over the long term. Yeah. The comfort we took, it wasn't an extensive thesis. I always admired Ron Drucker's purchases of the stuff around Children's Hospital. And Longwood Medical Area is supply constrained, as supply constrained as any market, together with maybe Sand Hill Road, Palo Alto, and parts of Kendall Square. And there's 10 markets like that in the country that just will always be 100% occupied. And under the Menino regime, it was tough to go higher, you know, and that expands and contracts depending on administrations. I ran the facilities committee at the Dana-Farber for years, and it's not hard to see that kind of anything you hold mid to long-term should do well there. And then add to it Harvard credit, Brigham and Women's credit, Dana-Farber credit, add to it that it's mostly lab. It's not like they can just go across the street easily. It was a good purchase. Yeah. And in retrospect, a, a great cost basis too. You've done some amazing things. You, you talked about Marine Home Center, which you did yourself. You operate the business, Blackfin Circle, but you do partner with sponsors and developers 
quite often in this market. You know, Samuels is a good example. You've partnered with them in South Boston uh, on Washington Village, which is a, a great in lease up multifamily deal. How do you think about partners for the fund these days? Are, are you doing things more on your own, on your own book or with partners at this point? So that was a long evolution. We had, I think, maybe two or three partner deals in fund three, but we came from a culture that we don't need a partner. We can do everything, you know, which is pretty stubborn and myopic. We learned to partner and it took time. On the one hand, yeah, we were a REOC, a real estate operating company, and we were fiduciaries. So we like to do both and we still do self-perform to some extent. You know, we'll property manage if we can drive to it in Boston. Otherwise we use third party around the country. So 98% of our properties are managed third party now or more. So executing on joint ventures was a challenge, both because we were a little stubborn about it, but it's also hard to get married with developers. And that courting process, we were often scary because they saw us as a reflection of them and the you know, cooks in the kitchen, who's doing what. Certainly 15 years ago, we still felt a little bit more like old intercontinental. We hadn't yet moved completely down the core risk curve. And so we often found we would court with someone and they'd pick someone else in the early years. And we'd sit there and say, look, our money is the same as theirs and we'll add value to it. And we just worked at it. You know, generally our weighting to joint ventures has been about 40% in the fund. I think it's kind of 32 to 35% today. We're in the ground with 10 or 11 construction projects, but we tend to pick operators that are really good in their sandlot. So that could be benchmark senior living for assisted living, or it could be true America for apartments, or it could be Cohen Industrial from Los Angeles on industrial. You know, we work with the Ellis family in San Fran, Bay Area of California on, on multiple projects. And we generally do repeat business with our partners. They come to like us. You know, our construction staff is still here. Pat O'Connor has been with us for like the second most tenured employee, like 45 years his father was on the Supreme Court of Massachusetts. His siblings were doctors and DAs and prosecutors. And my dad plucked Pat and he's an awesome construction manager, you know, and he's still around. And Tom Toronto's son, Alex, is kind of apprentice and much more than that. He's been with us for a number of years now. So we still have kind of that capability to CM together with our operating partners. And we think that adds a lot of value to it. But it also serves as an outsource acquisitions department. You know, the buck companies know Chicago the way the Leventhal's or whomever knows Boston, right? And so when you can JV with the buck companies, your basis might be a little lower. They saw the deal off market or they weave their way through entitlements faster and sooner than we could, you know, by a long shot. And so that's how we tend to use operating partners. Yeah. And I think that it was a smart and sort of humble evolution that you made there because I think just opportunity to access the deals that fit for you when you're open to working with partners in times when you want to step on the gas, that's obviously going to be an efficient way to do it with some advantages from a, from a deal standpoint. The other element from an investment standpoint is we've de-risked it a little bit more than we used to. We used to take value at risk, you know, in our earlier closed end funds, we take entitlement risk and we take construction budget risk. We don't today. Generally, we'll sign a prenup of sorts where we say, okay, we're good to go if you deliver the lease you said you would, or if you're, the GMP number is going to come in or the lump sum construction number is going to come in at X. We're married to the deal if you hit those two bogeys. If you don't, we generally share pursuit costs 50-50, even if the equity recalibrates to 90-10. You know, that's, a, as you know, a classic structure. 
But it's nice to hang the pursuit costs of 200,000 to a million bucks on A&E and, and legal, et cetera, so that if it fails, you know, four or $500,000 is a sting to a lot of local developers. But what it does for us is if you lose that money and walk from the deal, that's a lot better than locking in a $30 million loss because the project looks a lot different three years later. And that's one way we've come to kind of de-risk our approach to value add. It's incredible and all super interesting. You've built Call it a powerhouse, a behemoth, whatever you want to call it. It's a, a top 10 Odyssey Index fund. It's an incredible business and it's something to be proud of. And it's a product of all the great people that you've been able to retain over the years. So, Peter, this evolution of Intercontinental for us is interesting because we came into the business, you know, for me 15, 16 years ago. I've known Intercontinental, you know, really in one way, but I knew the heritage in a different way. And how did you steer that evolution? Really, you know, you talk about early fund formation, moving from private capital, privately capitalized deals to to the fund structure. Then you become the emerging manager, raising funds. And then you get to today where it's intercontinental of today, which is one of the largest leading investment managers in the country. Well, one thing I'll say with no false humility okay, I'm not the smartest investor. I guarantee you Brian Cavushin has a better deal sniffer than I do, or Jonathan Davis, or, you know, these are people I really respect, or Alan Leventhal. What I will say that I've been good about and our firm has is our approach to kind of team and hustle and tenacity, you know, and I, I really trust my team. I take Tom Toronto as a chief investment officer, pound for pound with any warden or Harvard kid or at any private equity firm in the country. He's that good. And... I give you know myself a little credit that I saw that years before he saw that you know he grew up in property management and asset management and he's an awesome CIO as is Paul Nasser as our chief now president but chief financial officer for many years and it, that tenacity and care and pride of ownership is everything for us and it, and so in the transition it played out with tenacity I'll give you an example I remember chasing one of my first out of state pension funds it was a mid-sized public pension in Michigan and we went and presented I was with someone do you guys know Will Averill really good hockey player Belmont Hill classmate of Leon's and uh, works at Aristotle now he was at Loomis for years trained at State Street kind of taught me the what State Street calls the three-legged stool of how you pursue an opportunity and he was young at the time but he you know helped me really grow the institutional side so we go and pitch this Michigan pension fund and I thought we delivered, we're gonna win this mandate, it's $20 million or whatever it is. And these are early days where we didn't have a lot of out-of-state public pension investors. And so we leave the meeting, felt like 80-20 we're gonna win. And we get the call just as we're about to get to the Detroit airport and we lost. And I say to Will, no way, I don't believe it. And so we, I said, we're going back. He goes, what do you mean we're going back? And Will's been at this at State Street for five years. He thinks I'm a nut. And so we get back in the car, we drive back. Everyone's left, but the chair of the pension fund. He was also the chief of police of that town. We caught him at his desk. It's now six or seven. I'm gonna miss my flight home and have to stay the night. And we went in I said, respectfully, I said, I don't know how we didn't win. We have more, and I repitched them. And I had more grace than that. I mean, we ended up talking for like two hours. We became friends. And when we left, he said, you know, maybe we could have another look at this. And we won the mandate. Like three weeks later, we got a call that they changed their minds. And, you know, for Will and me, and Will was a big part of the team in those years. He's not with us anymore. I think Matt and Bart would tell you that's how we are. I mean, we care that much that 
And it fits in with kind of the anecdote of showing up and effort really matters. I remember Arthur Siegel, who founded TA Realty, now an HBS professor, told me, and I look at Arthur as this kind of gentle genius founder of a really important PE firm. And he said, Peter, and he's got a great Brookline accent. He goes, I used to fly to Cleveland and there's like two major consulting firms there. And I would call someone there and I'd say, I just happen to be in your town. Oh, he, sorry, he'd say, he wouldn't fly in. He'd say, I'm here. And if they said, oh, I'll see you at four o'clock, he'd get on a plane and go see them. And, you know, kind of that tenacity in our early fun years really mattered. You know, emerging managers can have some advantages when pensions have weightings to that, but most don't, you know, and so you're going against IBM or you're going against JP Morgan or whomever. And, you know, the tenacity piece in our culture, I've described it in institutional services, but I think our, you know, the best areas that manifest is our asset management. Our asset managers go home still worried. They care, you know, and it's, it's, it's not our money, not our assets, but they behave as if it is. All rolls down to, to culture, which we've talked about before in this podcast, but in this conversation, we've come to it two or three times. It's clear that the culture that you've built here is the reason in most parts for your success. And being able to, to scale, maintain that sort of DNA of tenacity and entrepreneurial spirit, but to go from sort of the, the family business, private capital investor to today, while maintaining those elements of the business that you really like and what you help think, you know, goes down to empowering the right people who you trust and, and say, hey, you're really good at this. Instead of trying to control everything in a small setting, let's grow and we're going to trust the right people to lead us in those verticals is, is important. That's right. And that's how I, you know, it's still like a locker room for us to some extent. That's a terrible analogy, but it's true. And we behave that way. You know, we have a strong team here and, and we have fun along the way. One other thing I'd want to ask, Peter, we talked about earlier, you stepped into this business on an accelerated schedule into a time of tumult, regardless of where the business was at that point. Anytime there's a transition, like what you endured and what you were stepping into, it can be difficult. If you were to go back and sort of tell young Peter a couple of rules to live by or a few lessons that you learned over the years, or if you were going to tell your children or your younger employees as they are in the business, you know, anything stick out? As I start to answer, I'll try to think if there's specific kind of anecdotes, but I could tell you some themes. I do think hard work is hard to replace. And there's a famous story John McEnroe tells about tennis people in my years and his years were either Boletary people or Harry Hopman people. Harry Hopman was the legendary Davis Cup coach from Australia who had a huge camp in Florida. And McEnroe was a Hopman guy, as were Paul and I when we were kids. So McEnroe likes to tell a story that he was doing drills and Harry Hopman hit a ball and John didn't even try for it. And Hopman, who was a, he coached Laver and Rosewall and, you know, all these legends, started screaming at John, stick your racket out. You never know what's going to happen. You might make contact, you know, don't give up. And it's a nice anecdote for me as a tennis guy, but it applies, you know, showing up matters and effort matters. You don't know what happenstance or serendipity can come from just trying and showing up. And that's some of kind of, you know, I suggest to my younger employees, my older children, get involved with organizations. You don't know where it's going to lead. Other advice I push on people is make lists. If you look at my desk, it's always yellow stickies. I have my own little kind of created cards that I redo every day. And I always put the toughest stuff up at the top. You know, human nature is to delay your harder tasks or your harder calls. 
And someone said to me years ago, make your toughest calls in the morning, get them out of the way. You're afraid of it or you're nervous about it or it's too tedious or you don't want to do it. And I've had a reasonable discipline around making lists. It helps sort through the clutter for sure. And it helps you with priorities and you might change it every day or every hour, depending. But if there's a callback and, you know, and I try to keep calling my kids at the top of the list, certainly, but, you know, you guys, we all have a lot of balls in the air on home, on work, on aspects of your work. And so lists for me have always served well and do the tougher stuff first. You know, some other advice I, I like to give and people would roll their eyes if they've spend time with me, but I do believe in reverse engineering. Just between Harvard graduation and going out on the tour, I remember having lunch with my coach at Bertucci's in Central Square, and he took out a napkin and he said, Peter, how do you like to win a point? And I couldn't friggin' answer his question. Now, I was number one at Harvard, I'm about to turn pro, and I couldn't tell him succinctly how I like to win a point. And he said, well, let's do it this way. What's the best way to win a point? And I said, well, it wasn't easy at the time. This is now a speech I've given, but it's, you know, with such an easy overhead that you can close your eyes and spike the ball. He goes, good. Okay, how'd you get that? And I said, oh, I probably stuck a volley that made him hit a bad lob. How'd you get that? I probably thumped a forehand at his backhand and he sat the ball up. Good. How'd you get to an easy forehand? I said, well, I probably did this and then back up. I probably hit a good serve. And so we reverse engineered a point. And I think that applies in life. Some people who are still learning can get distracted by kind of noise and they don't necessarily listen to their radar. And that's kind of a corollary to it is listen to your radar. I believe everyone kind of knows what's right and can get to a good decision, but it's remarkable how often you don't listen to yourself about that and kind of trust your instincts around radar. So, you know, don't compromise on it. Of course, 25 to 30-year-olds need to eat some doo-doo and do their push-ups and sit-ups. We all did, right? But don't give up on kind of that dream and reverse engineering to it. And maintain, Joe Donnell used to like say, maintain optionality. Be careful about decisions that once you make them, you can't really go in different directions. And so I hope that's helpful and in the spirit of what you asked, but those are kind of some precepts that have, that I like to push on my children and certainly employees. We may need to just keep going for another 60 minutes. That's a great answer. That was perfect. And we love hearing your perspective and this has been a great conversation. If we could, we'd love to transition a bit into Peter Palangin, the human being, the human aspect, ask a few questions about who you are, what you do for fun. In particular, we like talking about how you give back and we know You're a philanthropic person. You're involved with the community in a number of ways. You mentioned the Dana-Farber board, but how do you choose to give back you and your family in the city and and nationally? Yeah. So for your younger listeners, this sounds patronizing. I apologize. But I do think a lot of the action in Boston happens in the charitable circles. You know, my earliest lessons where I went on the Fezzanin board at a young age, I mean, like 27. And so I'm sitting here with Don Shafaro and Walt Mercer from Fleet Bank and Dean Stratuli and Alan Burnin and Jim Pilata. And it was just a learning lesson. And Susie Welsh and, and Joanna Jacobson, you know, ran stride right. And when you watch the debates, the arguments at the committee levels, et cetera, it's learning, learning, learning. And those are all hugely philanthropic people too, who kind of teach you how you're supposed to give back as when you get older and you can. So I would say to and certainly your under 30 listeners is go get engaged. You may not get on big boards yet, but there's committee work and subcommittee work and the networking is awesome. The learning is awesome. 
And it's not a bad insurance policy for kind of heaven someday in terms of just giving back, right? And that's how I view it. You know, my priorities have generally been around children and hospitals. You know, certainly the kids' schools, I have six children, and I really believe in supporting teachers. You guys look back, and I'm certain I know what your answer would be if you said, name the top people who've influenced your lives. There's probably one, two, or three teachers that believed in you. Yeah, our mother's one of them, too, so we agree with that. Yeah, and, you know, same thing with life safety. And, you know, we manage a lot of firefighter pension money, but they take care of us. And so our charitable work as a company can revolve around that. For me, it's also around healthcare and hospital work. And my wife and I have gone deep with the Brigham Women's Hospital recently supporting studies around psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And it's fun to watch the Brigham, MGH and Hopkins kind of get into that space. Dana Farber's always had a warm spot. You know, my dad had his care there. Yeah, and that's a growth area that I don't know as much about, but it, the journal had an article yesterday about the psychedelic, I wouldn't say the pharmaceutical business part of it, but just in general, that's a rising tide and it's coming you know, soon, right? Agreed, yeah. You're seeing it in Main Street. There's an article in the Times or the journal every other day and there's Hollywood attention to it. And yeah, for sure, it's coming. There should be federal approvals, I would expect in 24. Wow. So, you know, I think you're a humble person. We know firsthand how generous you've been to a lot of these institutions and charities. And one great thing about you know, these conversations is we get to hear from people about what they're passionate about and, and where they spend their time. You have a wonderful family. Your kids, we know several of your children there and they're just awesome. Some of them here at Intercontinental are blazing their path in a great way. But I think passing that down, I'm sure you got that from your parents. You're teaching your kids to live their life that way. It's a special connection and a nice part of the, the DNA that's sort of flowing through. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, what else could you wish for, right? If you can kind of inspire that. And frankly, that's where it came from, from my parents or, you know, Eric Schlager is one of my oldest childhood friends, you know, watching Mr. and Mrs. Schlager's philanthropy or the Schuster's philanthropy. These were all uncles and aunts to me growing up and friends of my parents and modeling, giving back feels good also. Yeah. And then in, in sort of a different avenue, you've been active in a day for democracy and sort of crafting this movement. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks for asking. I really love this project. And it was just completely entrepreneurial watching news, you know, going back six, five and four years ago. You know, we were coming to kind of theater of the absurd to some extent in, in our politics. It hasn't improved. And this is, by the way, completely nonpartisan. You know, we signed up Republicans and Democrats and everything. But the simple concept that everyone should vote, I was raised that way. My mother always said voting's important and, and we always voted. And the statistics around it are shocking. You know, we're supposed to be the shining beacon of democracy in this world and voting numbers are pretty low. And so I had this idea, you know, my wife's shaking me saying, what are we gonna do about it as we're watching some lunacy? And I said, well, I have this idea that everyone should vote. It should be a national holiday. So really naive. I mean, to get a national holiday takes like 30 years and, you know, heavy lobbying, et cetera. But I started calling around and the instant feedback I had to some friends who ran companies around here was, well, we like the idea. We can't close because the stock market's not closed or hospitals can't close. So I started this organization, A Day for Democracy, that has a simple mission to encourage employers to choose either of two options. One is to give time enough to vote, started with day off. It morphed into time enough to vote or education around online balloting. They could pick or they could do both. And immediately signed up some kind of iconic companies in this area. 
you know, Ann Finucane signed up Bank of America, the Johnsons were friendly at Fidelity, State Street, all the hospitals, Hill Holiday, you know, the Globe and the Red Sox signed up. So within three, four days, I had kind of 10 great lead signups that took the pledge. And then we blew it out. And it was a little bit one-man army that I'm trying to kind of build around now, but I was just dialing for dollars. There's no money involved. You know, I supported this myself, but I signed 410 companies up. And it, you know, using some of my wife's contacts, we signed up some major Hollywood. Steven Spielberg signed up Amblin, which is kind of fun. So we, I stayed with it right through the special election in Georgia. We signed up Home Depot. We signed up the Atlanta Falcons, the Atlanta Hawks. And it's just to get more people to vote. And Jonathan Bush, an arch Republican, wrote an op-ed piece about our project for Time Magazine. And Bob Reynolds, who had just hosted a Mike Pence lunch, signed up Putnam. You know, yeah. so it, it was very much just about raising voting numbers. Yeah, I think that nonpartisan piece is so important because politics in general is such a polarizing topic right now. And people, rightfully so, are passionate about all sorts of different issues out there. But the fundamental activity of voting should be something that is sort of table stakes, and it's not. It's inarguable. I mean, yeah. that either side, nobody has an argument that you shouldn't go out and vote. So I have a bill in the state house right now. It's making very slow passage, but it's a little known fact that there is a voting law that requires employers to give employees between eight and nine in the morning to vote. This goes back to a bill from like 1870. And when I told Maura Healy that while she was still AG, and when I told the Secretary of State, Bill Galvin, that they were completely unaware, don't get mad at me for saying that, they were, they were unaware of this, but they, they were highly supportive. So I've working with Tom O'Neill's firm, we've proposed an update to that bill that basically modernizes it. And I was hoping to then also go to Wisconsin and Ohio and, and some other states, but it, it's hard moving state legislatures. Yeah, yeah, well, stay at it. It is a very important project and- Your firm signed up, thank you. Yeah, we're in. And like many people, when we heard that you were doing this, how could you not support it and be excited about it? And I think getting those companies to sign up, hopefully that just has started this title shift where it should be an automatic thing. I think when the light sort of dawns on people, of course, we should give people time to vote. So hopefully that momentum continues and and thank you for getting it going. So now we want to ask some sort of fun questions. You know, we love to talk about sort of things that you're passionate outside of the business. Intercontinental takes a lot of your time and focus and energy. Love to hear about what you do in your spare time. Are you still playing tennis, playing a little bit of golf? What do you like to do? Yeah, so very little tennis. I love it and, and miss it a little bit, but I've had three hip surgeries, back surgery, knee, shoulder, and, and a Mr. Potato Head. So I'll play a little on the clay with like my daughter, Madeline, or, or doubles in the summer with some friends, but I, I just don't feel as good, you know, and it's certainly doubles in clay I can handle, but tough on the frame. I've got heavily into yoga and it kind of comes and goes, but I was kind of five, six days a week for 20 years. And it definitely extended the useful life of my hips. And, you know, we were all Baptiste yoga folks and so much so that we bought it and owned Baptiste yoga for a couple of years and, and then sold it to employees. But it's important, you know, I breathing exercises I started with in my college. Dave Fish kind of talked about visualization and meditation. And I've used that throughout my life in, in an important way. And, and yoga falls into that. And I've been a little slothful in the pandemic, but it's important to me. I never was a big walker, but in the pandemic, I've kind of grown to really love going for a walk with my wife or my younger children, or when my older children, you know, deign to visit, you know, I definitely get them out for a two hour walk. And so that's a, something else too. You left out a special talent. We know you have a particular, maybe obscure, I'd call it instrument that you're pretty good at. 
the accordion. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. I think you might be the only accordion player I know. Well, first of all, I'm not that good of a player. My dad was really good, like played professionally in a band. They played in a Greek band and that's how my mom and dad dated. She was a wedding crasher. She'd go to, you know, Greek and Jewish weddings with ethnic Polish accordion playing. And, you know, she'd crash and sit in the front row Googling my dad and dance. That was like all the early dating years. Yeah, my, my dad had rhythm. I wasn't blessed with that, but I became competent. And basically I used to go to visit my grandparents in Iran kind of every third or fourth summer. And I remember the summer I was nine, I was bored out of my mind. I read every Hardy Boys book and you couldn't find a lot of books in English. And my grandparents bought me an accordion and I started taking lessons there. And until I went away for high school and boarding school, I was I played every day and took lessons every week. And so now it just comes out at kind of Christmas if someone prompts. I've seen it on video, you're pretty good. Yeah, I'd say so. So you're a pretty well-traveled guy. If you could go anywhere tonight for dinner with your family, where are you going? Particularly, not just what country, but is there a restaurant that you'd go to tonight if you could go anywhere? Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for different answers, but if you had to hold me to one, it would be Julia in Porter Square, Cambridge. G-I-U-L-A, it's awesome. But, you know, when I think of my older kids and kind of Nobu dinners with them that go too long and leave me alone and I'll eat Italian every night. So I could go to any North End restaurant. I've seen you and your wife and children out to dinner before. You guys have fun. And it's nice to be able to enjoy each other's company like that. Any memorable live music performances come to mind? Yeah, I mean, there's a number, but I'd have to put Van Morrison first time I saw him as number one for a lot of reasons. My wife, Eliza, knew that I love Van Morrison. And I had said to her just in passing with no intention, I would love to see him in concert. And we were like three months dating. And I'm like, first of all, why does this girl like me? But then she's like, we're going to Las Vegas on X date, and I can't tell you why. And it was just watch him live. And I don't know if, you, if you're a fan, but- Huge fan, never seen Morrison. Yeah, he, and he can be known to be hit or miss live, depending on his mood and stuff. But it was, it's, 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 say it's religious, sounds a little ridiculous, but it was kind of, and he does sing with some religiosity, but I just love Man the Man. He, yeah, we grew up listening to Van Morrison, and I think people around here too, there's been some articles written about it recently, but he- recorded and wrote a bunch of his music living in an apartment in Somerville. That's right. Yeah. So he yeah, hit a Boston history for yeah. like two years or so. Yeah. I love that you know that. Yeah, he's he's timeless. And our dad- Our dad's our, from Somerville. So. Grew up in Somerville. We loved that fact when we learned about it. What's sort of a daily routine for you? What are you doing every day? And where are you getting your information? Are you reading the paper? Are you going online? What are you sort of getting your inputs from? Yeah, I mean, routines have changed. For the last 30 years, I you know get up at 5.45, 6, and go down the basement and work out. Now, I have two younger children, about to be four and two. So that kind of time is more hanging out with them, certainly if there's extra time. I was always a newspaper person. I made the transition to iPad maybe five, six years ago, and I've come to really like it. I feel I can get kind of everything, but I skip around on it more. You have more guilt when you're reading a newspaper or magazine that you feel you have to get through all of it. The Economist is important to me because I feel like in less than 30 minutes, you can go around the world and have a reasonably middle of the road, it's slightly conservative, but it's a, it's fair reporting. And you can see what's going on in Rwanda or what's going on globally. And I still try to get some kind of workout in daily. It's become a little harder with just being slothful in the pandemic. 
I don't know if anyone would describe you as slothful. Well, you know, I we might have to include you know, a you know there's a here. headshot included in these podcasts, so they'll <laughs> see. Well, I was two a day for most of my life, and you know, I became a soul cycle nut with Matt Harrington and Kristen and the whole crew. But I had back surgery three years ago, so some of the aerobic stuff's been sidelined. But exercise still is important to me. You reading anything good right now? Any books that you like? I'm reading a pretty obscure book. I tend to fall asleep now. I was an English major and book reading was important to me in my life. And I'm generally more magazines and newspapers right now. And it's a common complaint to my wife. I'm just not reading books. And, you know, she says, well, why don't you turn off the TV? And she's not wrong, but nothing that's crazy good right now. It's hard for me with little kids to stay awake for more than a few pages of a book. I don't get through one page. Even. No, it, it, my, little my, my son, George, my oldest is six. He's now a voracious reader, but he just discovered that if he could sort of pull the shade back on his window, he gets enough light now that it's summertime to read after we put him to bed. So we've caught him the past few nights reading by the, the window light. And then he falls asleep with the book and then wakes up in the morning and he starts reading it. As a parent, we get a kick out of walking in and finding the book on his bed. It's hilarious. Well, Peter, this has been such an enjoyable conversation. We really, really appreciate you making the time for us. And I think our listeners are going to be excited to hear all these amazing anecdotes and stories and, and how you built this into such a juggernaut. So congratulations on all the success on the family on Intercontinental. And just thank you for the time. Yeah, hey, this was fun for me. Thanks for letting me do this. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Peter.